the love and character of God to others. When you exercise your gifts for the good of the body of Christ, the character of Christ is displayed to others. People who are gifted, for instance, at welcoming others into their home display the grace and generosity of the Lord. Those who receive that hospitality are given a picture of the character of Christ. If those people are unbelievers, they're likely to be more open to hearing about Jesus from people who are hospitable because they have given them a winsome and beautiful picture of who Jesus is. If the people who are experiencing that hospitality are believers, they are refreshed and strengthened by experiencing a tangible expression of Christ's goodness. As the different saints use their diverse gifts for the good of others, we all grow into Christ. We all move toward maturity in him. Verse 16 highlights the importance of every saint, every saint using the grace that Jesus has given them. Because he says, from, the whole, from whom the whole body joint, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The pastors and elders of this church do not make Fellowship Bible Church grow. Jesus makes the church grow, and he does that by working through every part of the body. But it takes each part working properly. And notice that I didn't say perfectly. I said properly. None of us will perfectly exercise our gifts for the building up of the body. But as we do use our gifts to serve others, the body will grow by the power of the Lord Jesus at work within us. The body will grow by unbelievers being added through salvation and by believers moving toward maturity in Christ. Look again at this discipleship diagram uh, we showed you a few sermons back. As followers of Jesus use their gifts, they and others are moved toward maturity in Christ. So where on this diagram, you may wonder, does evangelism fit in? Well, evangelism is everything on the left side of that cross. So strictly speaking, evangelism is when you're telling someone, this is who Jesus is and this is what he has done. But just getting to know an unbeliever is moving them toward the cross, because now you as a believer are part of their lives, and now you have an opening to speak into their lives, and when you share the gospel with them, of course, that is pushing them further toward the Christ, uh, toward the cross, confronting them with the claims of Jesus Christ. And I'll let you know that I'm Slade Reinhardt, and I'm the director of the Connect and Grow Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church, and it is my great honor and privilege to share God's word with you this morning. Thank you all for being here, and for those of you who are watching online, thank you for tuning in as well. We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 7, if you want to go ahead and turn there. This is the fourth sermon in our Apprentices of the King sermon series. <clears throat> we're talking about the mission of the church, which is making disciples, and we're using the term apprentices just to help you understand a little bit better what the Bible means by the word disciple. So uh, I, I trust that everyone made it through the great snowstorm that we experienced last week, uh, I hope that you are not one of those who lost power or water, but if you are, and it is now restored, that is something indeed to be thankful for. My son is a freshman at UT Tyler, and, and their water was shut off for most of that week, so uh, he got to experience third world living for a bit. Okay, Ephesians 4, I'm going to read verses 7 through 16 to begin, so follow along with me. It will also be on the screen behind me. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, 
What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. If you are, uh, have seen the movie National Treasure 2, some of this will not be news to you, but uh, I want to tell you about a man by the name of Edward de Laboulaye. He was a French legal expert and anti-slavery activist. And in 1865, he came up with the idea of a monument that would be given by the people of France to the people of the United States. He was uh, just thrilled with what had transpired in the events after the Civil War ended. He felt that the victory of the Union during the Civil War was a reaffirmation of the United States' ideals of freedom and democracy. He celebrated the passage of the 13th Amendment to our Constitution, which of course outlawed slavery and involuntary servitude. And so he wanted to do something to commemorate that. And uh, that dream later became a reality. He teamed up with a man by the name of Francois Bartholdi, Frederick Bartoli, my apologies, and I'm sure I'm butchering that in East Texas French. Uh, came up with the idea for the design for this statue, which was later named the Statue of Liberty. Now, Laboulay hoped that this gift, which was entirely funded by the people of France, they're the ones who raised all the money for it. They only asked the uh, United States to raise the money for the pedestal on which the statue would sit. But his hope was that this gift would, first of all, commemorate the strong ties between the nation of France and the nation of the United States. But more importantly, his hope was that it would inspire the people of France to call for democracy within their own country. So Laboulaye came up with the idea of this massive gift in order to strengthen his people in the cause of freedom and democracy. Now, as you just heard, as we read through Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, it talks about Jesus giving gifts to his people in order to strengthen them for a cause, and of course, a cause much greater than the cause of democracy. Now, from the previous sermons uh, that you've heard, we've learned a few things about apprentices of the king. Uh, we learned why we should make apprentices, and that is for Christ's glory and for man's good. We learned what an apprentice is. An apprentice is a forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in repentance and faith. And last week, we learned how apprentices are made by the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and then teaching people how to live according to what Jesus has commanded so this week, what I want to do is answer the question of who. Who makes apprentices of the king? Who does this work that is talked about that needs to be done in order for apprentices to be made? This passage in Ephesians actually gives a, a three-part answer to that question. So what we'll do is look at each component as it is established in the text and then try to build a nice full answer to answer this question. 
The first part of the answer is this, that Jesus gives gifts to each one of his people. Jesus gives gifts to each one of his people. Look with me again at verses 7 and 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Grace was given to each one of us. Each one of us. Now, who is the us that he is talking about? Well, the book of Ephesians was addressed to the saints in Ephesus. So he's talking about believers. And Paul, of course, is a believer. So that's why he says us. He's talking about each and every believer, each and every person who has trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and been brought into the kingdom of God. Every believer, every child of God, every person who puts their faith in Christ is given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, before I talk about that strange phrase, the measure of Christ's gift, I want you to think about this. What is the grace that he's talking about that we're given? He said to each one of us, grace was given. Is he talking about the grace of forgiveness? Praise God for that. That is a grace we have received in order to enter his kingdom and be united to him. Is he talking about the grace of adoption, whereby the Spirit brings us into the family of God forever to be one of his beloved children? Thank the Lord for that as well. Is he talking about the grace of the gift of the indwelling Spirit? God, very God of very God, living within us to help to shape us, mold us, guide us, and connect us to the Holy Trinity. Well, he is not talking about any of those graces. He's actually talking about the various spiritual gifts that Christ gives believers to enable them to do what he calls them to do. In verses 4 to 6, right before this passage, the Spirit of God highlighted the unity of believers. He mentions that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all and in all. And then he says, but grace was given to each one of us. In other words, there's a, a contrast. So the Spirit was talking about all these graces that we have in common, our faith, our hope, uh, the love of God, uh, the indwelling spirit. And now he's turning to things that differentiate us. In other words, the diversity within the body of Christ. We have many graces in common, but we have a diversity of graces with regards to our gifting. Verse 8 calls this grace gifts to men. It says, when Jesus ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. He's talking about the unique blend of spiritual giftedness that the Lord Jesus gives to each and every Believer, And he says that this grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts that we received are given to us by the Lord, and they are measured out by him. He determines what gifts we receive, and he measures it out. In other words, he's not saying, well, God gives a little bit of grace to this person, maybe a whole lot of grace to that person. What he's saying is that the Lord Jesus specifically tailors our giftedness to each individual. The Lord Jesus makes your giftedness especially for you, he is the one who measures it out. And it's a good reminder that we should never be jealous of another person's gifts. It was the Lord who gave them their gifts. You didn't choose yours, and they didn't choose theirs. The Lord chose according to his loving wisdom. Instead of feeling envy or resentment for what Christ has given someone else, we should thank the Lord for what he's given to us and use it accordingly. Uh, I, for instance... For many years now, inspired by uh, my all-time favorite artist, Keith Green, I have desired to be a gifted singer, but I cannot manufacture the gift of good singing within this structure that the Lord has given me. 
So I can admire those that do sing, like Sarah Ward up here, just absolutely beautiful. Uh, but I can't make that gift. So I, I shouldn't resent Sarah because she was given the gift of musical ability and singing talent. I should appreciate it and appreciate what the Lord has given to me. Jesus loves you more than anyone else loves you. And he gave you what he wanted you to have to fulfill the part of the body that he has reserved for you. Verse 8 is a revised quote of Psalm 68, 18. And uh, this is really interesting. I, I say it's revised because Paul actually changes a very important word in his citation. Uh, so look at the two side by side on the screen there. Eph Ephesians 4, 8 says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. But Psalm 68, 18 says, You ascended on high, it is speaking of God, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Psalm 68 is talking about captives bringing gifts to a victorious warrior, God himself, and kings giving tribute to God. And Paul is using this verse to say that Jesus gave gifts to those who are on the victorious side with him. So it sounds like He's playing a little fast and loose with the scripture there, uh, but of course he is not. <laughs> it was the same spirit who carried David to write Psalm 18, excuse me, Psalm 68 that carried Paul to write the book of Ephesians. What he's doing there is using an indirect quotation that summarizes the whole psalm. He's not directly quoting the psalm overall. Psalm 68 is about God being victorious over his enemies and God being the one who gives gifts to his children. That's actually how the psalm ends. It talks about God giving. So since Jesus was victorious over his enemies, and he gives gifts to his children, Psalm 68 can be applied to Jesus. And then he explains that just a little bit more in verses 9 and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the same one, excuse me, is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Psalm 9 and 10 are explaining that Psalm, excuse me, verses 9 and 10 are explaining that Psalm 68 is a foreshadowing or prefiguring of the work and ministry of Christ. It's foreshadowing the incarnation of Christ. When he came from glory to live on earth, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. I know that uh, some of your translations may say that he descended into the lower parts of the earth, which might be talking about his burial after his death. Either way, that's all part of his resurrection and his earthly ministry. And then there's also a foreshadowing of his return to heaven, the ascension that occurred after he had completed his work of redemption by his suffering, his bloody crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. Since Jesus was the victor over his enemies, he has won the right to give gifts to his people, just as Psalm 68 is referring to our victorious God who defeats all of his enemies and is then uh, giving gifts to his people. These two verses really are worth further exploration, but I'll move along to stay on the topic. So the first component to answer the question, who makes apprentices, is that Jesus gives gifts to each one of his apprentices, each one of his apprentices. The second component is this, Jesus gives leaders to equip his people for ministry. The Lord Jesus gave you forgiveness of sins. He gave you the indwelling spirit. He gave you eternal life. He gave you a place in the forever, forever family of God. He gave you his very righteousness. And praise God for his generosity. You and I deserved eternity in hell. 
but Christ gave us forgiveness and eternal life, fellowship with the living God instead. On top of that, he gave you gifts. He gave you spiritual gifts specifically tailored to you as an individual. I remember once the uh, founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, it is a mouthful, denomination, A.B. Simpson, once wrote that there is a place in the body of Christ for you that is as specific as if Christ had died for you alone. And that is indeed the very personal, intimate care that Christ has for all of us. So he gave you specific giftedness for you specifically. And then on top of that, he gave us even more. Look at verses 11 through 13 with me again. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus gave leaders to the church to equip his apprentices for ministry. Now, these five terms that are used at uh, the beginning of, of verse 11, students of Scripture define these terms differently, but I'll just go ahead and explain where I land. Uh, if you land differently, we can still shake hands and be uh, uh, part of the body of Christ. I believe that uh, his reference to apostles is talking about the original apostles that Christ appointed, minus Judas, who of course was removed from that office, plus Matthias, who was added to the office at the beginning of the book of Acts, plus the apostle Paul, who was directly commissioned by the risen Lord. And I think that prophets is referring to people in the early church who were directly, uh, excuse me, that the Spirit gave direct revelation to so that they might foretell the truths of God that had not yet been put in Scripture and that they might foretell what was to come. Ephesians 2.20 says that the cornerstone of the household of God is Christ himself and then the foundation is the apostles and prophets. And since we are now past the foundational stage, Scripture has been completed, the church has been established, then there isn't a need for the office of apostle or the office of prophet. The church was established, and therefore those gifts passed away. Now, as I said, some people understand those terms differently. Some people define apostle and prophet more broadly. For instance, some people say, well, apostle really means anyone that, that goes and plants a church in an area where there are no churches, and a prophet is someone who is gifted by God with, with special insight and understanding of the Scriptures. And again, if you land there, uh, as long as you're not attaching apostolic authority or prophetic authority to these people that you're uh, referring to, then I won't disagree too much. Uh, okay, so that's apostles and prophets. Evangelists, I think we all understand that pretty well. That's someone who is gifted to be able to proclaim the gospel. They are gifted to be able to lead others to Christ uh, very effectively and powerfully. Uh, David Fisher is a person that comes to mind in our congregation now, this last one, uh, shepherds and teachers, I actually uh, combine those. I'm going to use the term shepherd teachers, and here's why. Because of the way that this verse is constructed, it looks like Paul is putting those two terms together because it says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, but then it doesn't say the teachers. So it's as if he's saying the shepherds and teachers as one particular gift, thus shepherd teachers. And someone who shepherds the flock of God, of course, uh, is also gifted to teach since much of the work of spiritual shepherding is teaching. 
And as you know, being able to teach is one of the qualifications given for elders, and it is elders who are tasked with shepherding the church. Of course, a person can be a teacher in the church without also being a shepherd, so it's possible that Paul is simply saying that these two gifts are very closely linked. Be that as it may, Christ gave all of these gifts to the church, and the reason mentioned in this passage is to equip the saints. Now, this word equip means to, to fully furnish, so the, the leaders of the church should help the believers, the, the congregation, in order uh, should help them to be fully furnished to use their gifts. They should be fully furnished for the work of ministry. That isn't everything that church leaders do, but it is an essential part of the exercise of their gifts. Here's a way to think about it. Uh, let's suppose you and your friends decide to go on a hike in the mountains in Colorado, and because you are inexperienced, you hire a guide to go with you. Now, one of the jobs that guide will have is to make sure that you are properly equipped for the hike, that you have good shoes, that you have the right clothing for the weather, that you brought enough food, that you have equipment to prepare the food, tent, that kind of thing. But that's not all he will do. Also, the guide, of course, will warn you about dangers that you're going to find in the places where you're going. He will point out interesting sites, and he'll do everything he can to make the, the journey memorable and enjoyable. Well, church leaders are like that hiking guide. They are to equip you in order to do the work of ministry. But don't get the wrong idea. Church leaders are apprentices, disciples, just like the rest of us. The uh, Christian church is not divided into two tiers of believers, clergy, and laity. The people that are leading the church are also fellow disciples on the same level with all the rest of us. They're forgiven, <clears throat> excuse me, they're forgiven sinners who are learning Christ. And all of us who stand in front of you on Sunday mornings and preach God's word are fellow apprentices. We're not a higher class of Christian. We don't have a higher standing with God. The elders of our church are fellow apprentices. Their prayers, and I know we're doing that each week, but their prayers are not more powerful than your prayers. They do not have a higher standing with God. Their place in the family of God is not more important than your place. So recognize that the church does give us leaders, excuse me, that the Lord does give us leaders in order to equip us, but don't get the idea that they are above the rest of us or on a separate standing. Christ's gifts, Christ's gifts to the leaders of the church enable them to help the whole body to use their gifts properly and effectively. For instance, the pulpit ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church should help all of you to minister to others. It should help all of you in your work of ministry toward the body of Christ. That isn't all it should do, of course. It should help you to see God and to love him more deeply. It should strengthen your faith in Christ. It should expose your sin and, and move you to uh, lean on Christ to fight that sin. But it must also equip you. And you are being equipped for the work of ministry. Now, he explains what the work of ministry is with this phrase, building up the body of Christ. So he's talking about the edification, the nurturing, the strengthening of the body of Christ. That is the work of ministry. And everyone, leaders and everyone else in the body, those being led, are being used by the Lord to build up the body of Christ. Church leaders help others to use their gifts to build up the body, even as they, church leaders, use their gifts to build up the body. If you have trusted in Christ, then you've been gifted by him to help build up the body of Christ. No matter how young you are and no matter how old you are, every one of you, Paul then specifies what it is that we're building to. Okay, so we're building up the body of Christ toward what end? 
We use our gifts to help every part of the body to, and then he adds this, to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The church should be built toward unity, but a specific kind of unity, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The faith in this phrase refers to the body of truth that defines the Christian faith. The triune God who created all things, the fall and depravity of man, the person and work of Christ, salvation by grace through faith. The knowledge of the Son of God, of course, refers to personal and intimate knowledge of Jesus. So you and I are to use our gifts to build up the body by helping everyone in the body to know the truth of the faith, thereby, thereby being unified in the faith, and to know Jesus personally. Every one of us has a part in that work thanks to the gracious gifting of our Lord Jesus. That means from 11-year-old Frazier Anderson to Bob Coleman, who recently celebrated his 90th birthday, every believer in this body has a part to play in edifying the body of Christ. And I apologize, Bob, if I revealed your age and you didn't want to know. Now, what? think about this. This is, this is really neat. Think about this for a second. What did you do to qualify for the gifts that Christ gave you? He gives gifts to mature saints and immature saints. He gives gifts to those who are strong in their faith and those who are weak in their faith. He gives this gifts to the believer who really has her life together and the believer who seems to be constantly falling on his face. The last two phrases Paul uses to describe the aim of this work of ministry or this building up of the body, and both of them are really saying the same thing. He's talking about maturity, spiritual maturity. We measure spiritual maturity by Jesus, we are aiming for the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The standard for completion or perfection or full, mat full maturity is the stature or the height of the fullness of Christ. In other words, everything is measured by Christ. Everything revolves around him. He measures out our gifts to us, tailoring them to each of us, and he is the measure of our spiritual maturity, knowing Christ being like Christ, exalting Christ, loving Christ. Everything resolves around him who is the head of the church. Now, I am still working toward an answer to the question, who makes apprentices to the king? The first component I mentioned is that Jesus gives gifts to each one of his people. And the second component is that Jesus gives leaders to equip his people to minister. So now we'll look at the third and final component. And that is this. Believers use their gifts to move others toward maturity in Christ. Believers use their gifts to move others toward maturity in Christ. Recently, London-based company, Bellerby & Company, listed an opening for an apprentice globe maker. Bellerby is actually one of only two companies in the entire world that still makes handcrafted globes. And here's some of the information that they gave in the job description. They said it takes six months to a year to learn how to make just the smallest size globe. It is a further few years to make the larger size globe. You will incorrectly make a globe every day, incorrectly, keep in mind, every day for six months. You could then do one perfect, and then the next ten will still fail. You have to not get easily frustrated. Boy, that's an understatement, isn't it? You have to not get easily frustrated and be stubborn and passionate about the role to get it right and not want to give up. It is a long learning process. 
Now think about what these apprentice globe makers are doing. They're using their gifts in concert with others, in this case cartographers and artists and painters and woodworkers, to work toward a common goal, producing a quality handcrafted globe. And that's a good picture of apprentices of Christ. We are using our gifts in concert with one another to work toward a common goal. So let's look at that common goal, excuse me, that common goal is described in the last three verses in this passage. So that, so we're building up the body of Christ toward maturity, so that we may no no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Why does Jesus give gifts to believers? Why does he give apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers to the church? So that we, the church, the body of Christ, may grow up, may mature in him. So that we may no longer be children, but instead mature men and women in Christ. Verse 13 said that the aim of the work of ministry is spiritual maturity. And Paul returns to that thought in these last three verses. The Lord wants all of us to use our gifts to help others move toward spiritual maturity. One way we do that is by leaving childishness behind. There are people in our congregation who are like children. They are spiritually immature. I won't name any names. I'm kidding. I do have a list. No, I really don't. People who are spiritually mature get thrown around by false doctrine. They get thrown to and fro, it says, by these waves of false doctrine. They get fooled by human cunning, false teachers whose verbiage sounds so biblical, but who are in reality teaching doctrines of demons. Those who are spiritually immature are vulnerable to be tricked. They're vulnerable to having their focus taken off Christ. They're vulnerable to having their faith shaken. Maybe someone convinces them that Their child has diabetes because of their sin. And if they would just believe enough, God would heal their child. So they spiral into guilt and condemnation. They try to work up more faith. And when their child isn't healed, they feel more guilt and condemnation. They need brothers and sisters in Christ to help them grow up in this area. They need other believers to speak the truth in love to them. They need their brothers and sisters to tell them that there is no condemnation in Christ and that the Lord doesn't promise freedom from sickness or healing from sickness in this life. They need to know that God is for them, not against them. He isn't waiting for them to mess up so he can punish them. The punishment for all their sins was laid upon Christ. And you, excuse me, you, the body of Christ, do the work of ministry by helping them to become more stable in their faith, to be able to rest in the loving security of Christ, to be able to recognize false teaching when it is entering their lives and influencing them. Instead of being unstable children, we should grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So how do we grow up into Christ? Well, we could probably come up with a lot of ways if we thought about it for a while. I'll just mention a few. For one thing, we do what we're doing here. We gather each week to sing together to the Lord, to hear God's word preached, to pray for one another, to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith. We pray privately and study the word of God on our own. And this passage highlights the fact that we need to spend time with other believers who speak the the truth and love to us so that we may also speak the truth and love to them. 
The Sunday morning sermon is actually only one part of the word ministry of Fellowship Bible Church because every believer should be speaking God's word to other believers, applying it to life's situations and difficulties. We speak God's word to others when we eat, eat together or have coffee. When someone's going through a trial, we speak God's word for their comfort and their encouragement. The variety of word ministry is limitless. The important thing is that we intentionally bring God's truth into our conversations, not to win an argument or to impress people, but to help them move toward maturity in Christ. And that applies to unbelievers as well. An unbeliever, of course, is not in Christ because they have not trusted him and been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So our word ministry to them will move them toward coming to Christ in the first place, toward being an apprentice. Now, you might be wondering why the word emphasizes speaking the truth in love when most spiritual gifts aren't speaking gifts. For instance, how does hospitality or serving or administration or mercy fit into this? Well, probably more ways than I can think of, but uh, one way that all of the gifts fit together is that they communicate. And once you get on the other side of the cross, everything that you're doing in your gifting is helping yourself and other believers move closer toward maturity in Christ. And of course, the goal there at the end, that's glorification when we're all sit, uh, standing around Christ worshiping him. It's kind of an odd diagram, I know. But I didn't create it. <laughs> maturity in Christ, that kind of thing. It's a great idea. Oh, yes. Okay, so uh, here's, what I, here's, a, here's, here's the wordy way to sum up this uh, passage, and I'll give you a less wordy way in a second. Believers equipped by church leaders to use their Christ-given gifts bring others to know Jesus and to grow in Jesus. Which leads us to an answer to our question. Who makes apprentices of the king those who are apprentices of the king? Not just evangelists, not just shepherd teachers, not just elders, not just pastors, not just life group teachers or Sunday school teachers. Every apprentice is involved in the work of making apprentices of the king. Jesus is building his church, and he graciously gives us a part in that work. If you are a believer today, give him praise that he has generously and graciously tailored giftedness, a package of giftedness to you to enable you to do the work that he's called you to. Praise him for saving you by his grace and then adding this superabundant grace on top of it. Ask his help to use your gifts to build up the church. One way you can do that, for instance, would be to serve in kids' ministry or guest services, showing people hospitality and graciousness, teaching younger children about the goodness and grace of God. You could volunteer at our upcoming family Easter celebration, which is going to be a proclamation of the gospel. There's going to be a proclamation, of course, that Christ Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. <clears throat> now, if you aren't sure how to use your gifts, or perhaps, for instance, you may be even unsure what your gifts are. You may, may think, I don't even know what I should do because I don't even know what gifts Christ has given to me. Well, there is a life group that is currently in operation for exactly that purpose. Uh, he just walked out, but John, John Livingston back there, he can wave at you. John Livingston and Dan Rossner are leading a life group that meets in the gym on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., and it helps people to find out what their gifts are, as well as to match them up with opportunities to serve within the church. 
However, I will also add, so keep that in mind. Yes, I didn't mean to just say however as if that was unimportant. That is important. That is one of the ways that, that church leaders are equipping the body of Christ. But I also want to add that the use of your gifts is not limited to church gatherings. There are 168 hours in a week. How many of those hours do you spend gathered with the body of Christ? One, maybe two, two and a half, three. The uh, people that work in the tech booth, about five. <laughs> Because they get there early and stay late. So most of your life is lived outside of this gathering. But your gifts are still with you. So the Lord Jesus Christ still wants you to use your gifts to build up the body. Again, by engaging with unbelievers, by encouraging and strengthening believers. In every case where you are intentionally speaking God's word into other people's lives. <clears throat> you exercise your gifts in every setting of your life. And then the Lord uses that to build up his church. Let's all stand and let me uh, close us in prayer. Lord God of the universe, thank you for this word that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us in darkness, but you gave us the light of scripture. You gave us the indwelling spirit. You gave us life in your son. Oh God, we praise you for that this morning. We praise you that you have gifted us not only with salvation, but with enablements, divine enablements to do the work that you've called us to. Not out of a sense of earning something, but out of a sense of love, joy, and gratitude for what you're doing in us and in the world. God, I pray that you would bless every believer in here to be encouraged once again in their standing in your family based purely on your righteousness. I pray, God, that you would move their hearts to desire to see others to grow toward maturity in Christ and that you would move them to use their gifts toward that end, to bless those around them as you have blessed them. Lord God, I also pray that you would carry our congregation through this time as we're feeling somewhat in between as we're looking for a new lead pastor and uh, trying to find our direction in that. I pray, God, that you would bless our elders with your wisdom and insight. I pray that all of the body would also be blessed to know that you are in command, that you are in charge, that it is your church, not ours. And we are merely members that you have graciously brought into it. Heavenly Father, we praise you for all that you are and all that you have done. Give grace to all that have been here this morning. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters. There will be people up here at the front to pray with you. I forgot to invite them up as I was praying. So if you have anything you need prayer about, please come forward and take advantage of that.